Okay, well, um, Colossians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. Uh, we also have Spanish Bibles in the back, if you are so inclined. Um, but we are going to continue in our series through the book of Colossians this morning. In chapter 1, thank you, Cassie, for reading our text for us today. Verses 9 and 10. Um, at, so this morning, as we continue through our uh, journey through the book of Colossians in chapter 1, so far we have seen Paul, who's the writer of this letter, to the, the Colossian church in what is now Turkey. <clears throat> he is writing this letter, and he is, in this first chapter, he's unpacking some really, really big ideas, really grand truths about uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, who God is, who Christ is, um, the nature of Jesus, all these things which are incredibly enormous ideas in this very first chapter. And so we've been, we've been trying to unpack some of these thoughts as Paul is even just in his greeting to the church of Colossians, uh, some of the stuff that's coming out already just in the very greeting <laughs> that, he's, that he's greeting them with um, we're, we're having to go really slow. That's why we're going like two verses at a time here because there's just so much information here. There's so many great and grand thoughts for us to kind of wrap our minds around that as we talked about a few weeks ago, we really can't even begin to wrap our minds around apart from the Spirit's help, apart from God kind of showing us these things and revealing these truths to us. It's really hard for us to even get our minds around what is even being said here. So before we even start, let me just pray for us that God would help us to do that this morning. God, we praise you this morning again. We thank you for um, the truth of your word, God, even the truth of the songs that we've already sung this morning that um, just declare who you are and remind us of who you are, uh, of your, your glorious grace, the way that you rescue us, the, the way that you've come to us in our need while we were sinners and you die uh, and, you, and you save us. Jesus, we just praise you for that this morning. And, and God, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us as we um, once again come back to your words that we believe are your words. And would you help us to understand these, these great, great truths that are way beyond our natural understanding. And would, would you, by your spirit, help us to, to make sense of what you want us to make sense of. And help me as, as, I, as I talk. And help us all to have ears to hear what you have for us this morning, God. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so, so far in Colossians 1, Paul has been addressing these fellow believers, these fellow Christians, um, and he's commending them. He's congratulating them, so to speak. He's commending them on what he's hearing about them, the, the level of their love and their faith that they have um, for one another, the way that, that it's very clear that the gospel that has come to them has taken root in their hearts and is showing up in their lives. And he's hearing about it and he's saying, this is good. This is good news that I'm hearing. And it's all happening, he says. Um, it's kind of coming out of this thing that is sort of tethering them back to God. This hope that they have that has come to them from the gospel coming to them. So the hope that they have is bearing fruit in faith and in love. And it's, it's anchoring them to the source, which is 
Christ himself. And this is what the, the hope springs out of, and it brings this fruit to bear. And the gospel that has changed them, the gospel that has come to them, has actually changed them, is his point. And he's noticing it. It's not just that they've mentally ascended to this truth, and they say, okay, I believe this, and now I believe this other thing. That happened, but along with that, there's fruit that's being seen and noticed and felt in the church, and in the, in the, even in the city. And it's all coming out of this hope, and it's all coming, the hope is coming out of the gospel, and the gospel has come to them, and as we saw last week, uh, from a man named Epaphras, right? This guy who was this faithful servant who took the gospel to them, preached the simplicity of the gospel to them, and the gospel took root and is bearing fruit in their lives. And today, we, we, uh, we continue in that thought, this, this sort of uh, greeting that he has for the church of Colossians. And it, once again, Paul is wading into some more very, very light topics for us to address today. Nothing heavy today. Just simply the will of God. That's all we're talking about today. So and he's wrapping up this greeting. And he says to them that he's praying for them. He reminds them again that he is praying for them. And it says that he has, hasn't ceased praying for them. He's faithfully praying for them. It's not just uh, he has these throwaway prayers at, around the dinner table or something. Oh, yeah, and by the way, be with the church of Colossae. Amen. Let's eat. No, he's, he's laboring in prayer for them. He's, he's consistently before the Lord praying for these fellow believers. And he's praying something very specific, it tells us. He's, he's going to the Lord consistently for these brothers and sisters, and he's praying something specifically for them. He's asking, he's petitioning God on their behalf. And he says in verse 9, He's asking God that they may be filled with the knowledge of His will, of God's will. That they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of God's will. So God's will. What, is, what are we talking about here? What a topic for Paul to introduce here in the greeting of this letter. Let's talk about God's will a little bit. There's a lot of discussions. There's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of different perspectives. When we begin to talk about this idea of God's will, it's a very enormous topic. But what we first see when we read this text, the first thing that we come to know about God's will that Paul is telling us here through the inspiration of the Spirit is that there are, in fact, aspects of God's will that are knowable. That's our first point. This, there are aspects of God's will that are noble to us. It's not all just this grand mystery. There are knowable things that God intends for us to know. And Paul is pleading and, and petitioning God that he would show the, the Colossians this will. Whatever, this, whatever he means by this, there is something about it that is knowable to them. That's important. It's really important. Obviously, the fact that he's praying for this tells us that knowing God's will is important. It would, it's obviously, according to Paul, a, a great help to them. It'd be a great help to them, according to Paul, if they were to know what the will of God is. Just like, like if you were a football team, 
And if you were to know the will, or some might call them the plays, of the team that you're playing against, that would be of great help to you, right? You guys are laughing. I don't know why. I didn't say anything specific. But you can see how that would be a great help if you knew the will and the plays of the team that you were getting ready to play. It would help you. And Paul's praying this, this to God and saying, God, we want, I want this church to know your will for them and your will in general. And this is an important distinction for us to make because I think oftentimes when we talk about the will of God or knowing God's will, particularly knowing God's will, we tend to use that phrase, when we, when we tend to use that phrase, we, we kind of automatically insert something at the end of it, right? God, God, we want to know your will for my life, for our life, right? For, for, I want to know your will for my life. We tend to kind of like immediately put that right in at the end of that. And that's kind of where our brain naturally tends to go, I think, a lot of times. When we talk about knowing and understanding God's will. And the point today is, is not that God has no will for you or no plan or no purpose for your life. That's not the point of this sermon. God certainly has told us that he has a plan for us. He has a, a will for us. He has plans that he intends to accomplish. This is undoubtedly true as we look at God's word. But what we are saying today is that that is not the totality of what it means to understand and know the will of God. It's not just simply boiled down to, okay, I just need to know and understand the will of God for my particular life as it pertains to me only. It's a part of it. It's a very important part of it. But it's not all of it. And if we look at what Paul is laying out for us here, we can sort of see a flow of thought. He's, he's, sort of, he's sort of laying this out for us in, in a way that sort of tells us what we need to know and how he organizes it. So, bear with me for a moment. We're going to talk a little bit, we're going to get a little theolo theology class, just for a minute, okay? Just for a minute. So when theologians, guys that are way smarter than me, probably not smarter than some of you, but definitely smarter than me, when they talk about, generally when they, when they write about or talk about the will of God, oftentimes you'll see that they sort of, oftentimes will divide it up into two categories. Two different categories of God's will. More often than not. Sometimes three, but there's, there's all kinds of conversations about this. But generally you're going to see two categories. Sometimes the categories that they use to describe God's will are God's hidden will and God's revealed will. This is one of the ways that people try to kind of make sense of God's will. And largely this idea comes from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. So you can see where they would get this idea of hidden things and revealed things. Secret things and things that are made known. So this isn't the worst way of thinking about God's will because we can see sort of where they get that from scripturally. 
I tend to think of it maybe slightly different. I get this thought largely from a guy named John Frame, if you haven't heard of him. So this is, this is part of the debate about how we divide up God's will and how we think about God's will. This is a way to think about it. This is not, I'm not claiming this to be the way necessarily, but I find this way particularly helpful as I look at Scripture. He gives us these two categories as well. He even kind of goes into a third category that we'll get later, but mainly these two categories. God's decree and God's precept. And those are kind of words that we don't use a lot. God's decree and God's precept or precepts. So let's talk a little bit about these two kind of categories. And I made a little slide for us so we can maybe help us think through this. So there are, there are two categories here. God's decree or God's decretive will. These are things that, that God says, these things are going to happen. They're going to happen. Sometimes he tells us that those things are going to happen, and sometimes he doesn't tell us that those things are going to happen. Okay? Tracking with me? So, so things like the Messiah is going to come. God's decreeing that that's going to happen. And it happened, right? There was nobody who could stop that from happening. There's no one who could change his mind on that. There's no one who could sort of thwart his plan to bring the Messiah. That was God saying, this is going to happen. And he just so happened to tell us about that. God says, everyone will be judged. Every man will be judged. That's God's will that he decrees that is, is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. This is part of what he is decreeing to happen. Everyone will be judged. There's other things that maybe I can even give you an example because maybe he hasn't told us about them yet, but he has purposes and he has things that he has purposed to happen that are going to happen. And this is his will. He, he wills them, he desires them, and they will be accomplished no matter what. No matter what we do, no matter what anybody else tries to do, we can try to stop it, we can try to slow it down, but it's going to happen, okay? That's decree, that's his decrees that are just there. But then we have this other category that he helps us to kind of understand, which is his precepts, his preceptive will. These are things that God wills or desires or commands to happen that may or may not always happen in the way that he desires them to happen. So God wills, God commands that we not lie. That's his will, that we wouldn't lie, that we wouldn't kill, we wouldn't murder, right? You could argue that that is God's desire, that is his will, that is what he wants to happen. And this is what the definition of will is, right? Something that God desires or wants to happen. That is what we would des describe, how we would describe his will. But there are things that God wills and that God wants, maybe desires to happen in certain ways. And it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around this. But, but that don't always happen. Sin is a great example of that. God says don't commit adultery. People commit adultery all the time. God says, don't lie. People lie all the time, right? So we can see this other category of things that God wills to happen or desires to happen that he leaves open to choice. He leaves open to choice. He chooses to leave these things open to choice, so to speak. Tracking? So we've got these two categories. These are things that God decrees that are going to happen, and these are God's precepts, right? His desires, his commands, things that he desires to happen, 
that he, he leaves a sense of agency within. Okay, so we have, th- hopefully this can kind of help us think as we're, as we're trying to entertain what it means when he says the will of God, everything doesn't fit in one category or the other. There are things that fit in one category and there are other things that fit in the second category. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes he tells us, sometimes he doesn't. But this is, this is maybe just kind of a starting point for us as we begin to wrap our minds around this idea of God's will. And particularly as it starts to work its way down to us, God's will for us. Tracking? Okay. The- Theology 101. Done. So God has purposes and plans that cannot and will not be stopped or changed that are his will. And he has also given commands, and in some cases he has desires that can also be described as his will, but may or may not always happen because he's left them open by his choice, to our choice. And I know we're not going to get to the full bottom of this. We're not going to put a nice little bow on this at the end of the sermon. There's still going to be a lot of mystery here. There's going to be a lot of things that we go, okay, hold on a second, great. We want to talk through those questions. Come talk to us. We'd love to wrestle through this with you. But here's, here's how we're, we're seeing the best that we can tell what we think God's will is. Hopefully this helps us to think about it. And specifically, think about it in this context where Paul is, is talking to the Colossian church. And he's, he's asking God that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Okay, so right away now we have some categories to begin to think about that. He's saying, I I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And so that could mean both of those categories, right? It could be any of those categories. He's not, he doesn't get specific necessarily right away. Having the knowledge of God's will, where does it begin? How do we start the process? How does God start the process in and through us? To get us to the point where we can begin to understand his will. The things that are higher than our thoughts. Are there things that, is everything that's a part of God's will intended for us to know? Are there things, some parts of God's will that some of us know that others don't? There's a lot of questions here. Tons of questions. But where do we start? Having the knowledge of God's will begins with having knowledge of of God. That's where it starts. Understanding God's will begins, the starting point for understanding God's will begins with understanding God, knowing God himself, the person, not just a list of things about him, not just a list of things that he's going to do. We don't understand God's will just by looking at his to-do list. We have to, we have to know who he is. That helps us. That's our starting point. And though we don't always know the specifics, because some of them have been kept from us, the more that we can know him in his character and his nature, the more that it can help us to begin to discern what he wants us to know about his will. Things that he has for us, things that he has for the world, the things that he has for the universe. God doesn't just want us to try to figure out his special instructions and directions for our life and for our life only. It's not just about God 
show me your will for me. Put me in a little box and just show me what you want me to do. He's, he's calling us to, to think more broadly about it. And he's calling us primarily to himself first, to understand him, to know him, to love him. We have to understand and remember that God does have a plan for us, but that plan and God's will for us, it happens within a context. It happens within a larger context than just ourselves. And this context includes His decrees, the things that are going to happen no matter what. The context includes His precepts, the things that He desires or commands for us to do. So if we, we simply try to understand our story and our story alone, God, tell me what to do with my life, it might make it actually harder for us to actually understand God's will because it's a limited perspective. We're, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're looking at his to-do list for us instead of looking at him. And it can, and it can, it can be a, a, a block for us to understand his will if that's how we approach it. But this is the work of God, right? This is the work of God in us. This is the work that the gospel, when it shows up, like Paul is talking about, when the gospel shows up on the scene, it begins to change our hearts. It begins to change who we are. It changes us fundamentally. It changes our identity. And it, and it flips the light switch on in our minds. We see this idea later when we talk about God's will, right? This idea of our minds being changed, our minds being renewed. We'll talk about that later, but... But this is, this is what God does when He gives us this great gift of the gospel and it changes who we are. And we are saved and we're changed by this gospel. Later in this chapter, it says that we are transferred. When that happens to us, when the gospel comes to us and we believe it in faith, and we, and we surrender to Jesus, and we place our faith in Him, and we acknowledge that, that we have nothing to offer other than our sin, and we receive His grace, and we receive His forgiveness, and we receive His kingship, it says that we are transferred. We're transferred from one kingdom to another. We're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Okay? And this beloved Son is the king of the kingdom. He's the king. Jesus is the king. He is our new king. When the gospel comes and it shows up in our hearts and our minds and our lives and it takes root, we have a new king. So we have new orders, right? We have a new, we have a, new a person who who's, has authority over us, who we submit to. We, we submit to his kingship and his lordship. And he doesn't just leave his people to stumble around and try to figure out their lives because he's a good king. He's a good king and he's a good shepherd. And he promises to lead us through life by His Word and by His Spirit that He has given us. And this is our second point. God reveals His will to us first through His Word and His Spirit. This is where we start. We have to start by knowing God. And how do we know God? First and foremost, we know Him by His Word that He has given us through the help of the Spirit that He has also given us, which is Himself. So he's setting us up for success here. You see that, right? He's setting us up for success in knowing his will. He's, it's not something that he's trying to hide from us. It's not a game 
that he wants to play with us, where he's like, you'll never see my will. And like, no, he, he's setting us up for success to know what he wants from us. He's given us his word. He's given us himself. And he says, the way that you know my will is by knowing me. And you know me because I've given you what you need to know in order to know me. This is the starting point. This is the starting point. A couple of texts to keep in mind. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given us His Word so that we can know how we are to live. What His will for us is. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You see what He's, you see what he's unpacking for us here? He's saying, I'm giving you what you need. I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you what you need for life and for godliness, for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so you'll know how to live. This is where we start. When we want to know what God's word is, we start with his word. And there are, there are many things in God's word where he says, he actually says the words like, this is my will. <laughs> he says it. This is my desire. This is my will. And so we, if, we're, if we're trying to go through this grand process of discerning what the will of God is, where do you think we should start? Probably there where God says, hey, this is my will. We should go, okay, let's start there. So what are those things? Well, I'll give you five. The things that God says are his will. There are more. But here's, what, here's where he uses the terms, right? Salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. God desires all people to be saved. Sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is God's will. Your sanctification. It's pretty plain. God wills for His people to be filled with the Spirit, and to live Spirit-filled lives. Ephesians 1 tells us that He gives us the Spirit. Ephesians 5 tells us that, if it, that it is, Ephesians 5, 6, 17, and 18 says that it is the will of the Lord that we should be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the will of the Lord. It is His will that we do good to all. 1 Peter 2, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. For some, it is God's will to suffer. That's what it says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. So where do we start? 
We want to understand God's will for our life. Maybe part of God's will for our life is that we suffer. Maybe God's will for our life is that we do good to all those around us, even the foolish. Maybe, right, you can see where we can start to to put these building blocks together. Now, this doesn't answer all of our questions, right? That's not a comprehensive list. We're going to talk about that in a second, but but it's a good starting point for us of knowing what God for sure says is his will. His commandments is another place, right, where God specifically says, hey, do this. Hey, don't do this. That's pretty safe to say that's God's will. God often tells us his will very plainly. I don't have to wonder if it is God's will for me to commit adultery. I don't have to have a, a prayer meeting with the other pastors and be like, guys, help me think through this. Is this God's will for me to commit adultery? They're going to be like, no, we don't need a prayer meeting. We'll send you a Marco Polo and we'll tell you that you're an idiot. <laughs> it's very simple, right? This is very plainly God's will for me. So when we're trying to understand his will, we begin with what is clear and we work our way to what is less clear. This is a great rule for us in general as we're engaging with God's word. Start with what's clear and work towards what's less clear. Let the clear inform the less clear. The things that are clear about God, his nature, his character, the things that he clearly commands us to do, the promises that he has made for us. If God makes a promise, you can, you can best believe that that's part of his will. So if it's outside of what God has promised, it's probably not his will, right? We can see that the, the process is beginning to unfold for us as to how we are to discern these things. These are the starting points, right? This is where we begin the process. This doesn't answer all of our questions right out of the gate, but it gives us a really good foundation to begin to entertain what it means. And then Paul moves into these other categories. He moves from knowledge to the categories of wisdom and understanding. This is what he says. Let's read it again. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see how these things are sort of tied together? They're linked together as you work your way through. He's saying, I, I, I want you to start with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the will of God. And that, that needs to happen in a particular way as it starts moving into your life. It happens in spiritual wisdom and understanding. You've got to have those two things with the knowledge. Wisdom and understanding of the knowledge. We sort of have an idea of the difference, right, between knowledge and wisdom, right? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you don't put it in a fruit salad. There's a difference. That is an old joke. That's yeah, definitely a joke. 
So he's saying that our knowledge of God and his will must be worked out in and through our lives. God gives us what we need in Scripture, but in order for us to apply those things in life, we need wisdom and understanding. That's how the things from Scripture get into our life and work their way out in the details of our lives. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. These, uh, this is taking the truths about what God has told us about Himself, His commands, His promises, all the things that God has revealed in His Word and applying them to our unique life situations. And there are things that God does not, as we know, get specific about in His Word. God doesn't tell you whether or not you should marry Sally. I hope there's no Sallys in here. Right? It's not like, oh God, oh, uh, I like this girl Sally. God, should I marry her? All right, let's see. Oh, is there anything in here about Sally? It's not in there, right? It doesn't tell you whether you should take the job at Chase or at Huntington. It doesn't tell you that directly. It doesn't tell you if we should move back home or stay in the big city. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't get that specific all the time. Sometimes he does, but not all the time. Most of the time he doesn't. Sometimes he says, go to Nineveh. <laughs> but not all the time. If he does say that to you, you should probably go to Nineveh, as we've seen. Things go bad when you don't. But most of the time he doesn't. He doesn't get that specific with us. Why? Because he, he shows us these larger categories about who he is, about his promises, about his commands, about his nature. Then he starts working it way down into larger categories of his will. And then he says, okay, and now you've got to work these things out in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Those things go with this. And I think at times we can get really bogged down as we're trying to navigate our way through life as believers, right? We want, God has changed our heart. He's come to us in the gospel and he's changed our heart and we want to do what he wants us to do. We genuinely do, right? I, I have conversations with people all the time. Where it's like, I don't know what to do here. I want to be obedient to God. I want to do what he says. I want to live a life that's pleasing to Christ. I want to live a life that's, that's bearing good fruit. But I, but I have these, this decision in front of me, and I'm not sure which one God wants for me. What's, what is His will here? Well, this is where wisdom is required. Wisdom, is our third point, helps us to apply the knowledge of God to the specific circumstances of our lives. Instead of coming right out and telling us what to do, oftentimes wisdom works backwards. Right? Oftentimes wisdom works backwards. It doesn't just come right out and tell us exactly what to do. You should take the job at Huntington. They have better benefits. If you take the job at Chase, your house is going to burn down. Right? Like we always think there's like these contingencies attached, right? But God doesn't, that's not how the wisdom plays out normally in our life. That's what we would like to happen. It's like, God, could you just tell me so that way I know all these things and make sure everything happens in the way that it's supposed to go? But that's not usually how it does. Wisdom generally works backwards to help us rule out things that we shouldn't do. 
right? That's how wisdom tends to work. That's how God uses wisdom, spiritual wisdom. And the filter that we use to do this, this filtering through is His Word and His Spirit and oftentimes His people who also have the Spirit. The same Spirit that you have. Right? So if, if God's Word and God's Spirit work together to help us to understand, well, guess who else has the Spirit in this room? All the other people of God have the same Spirit that you have. And that Spirit's not going to be on different wavelengths. Kevin's Spirit is not going to be different than mine. He's not going to be like, wait, what did you, you know, you had this, I had this. You had Chase, I had Huntington. Hold on. Of course he had Chase. He's a homer. And in and through this process that the Spirit uses through the Word and oftentimes through other people, we can begin to ask questions that help us discern. Is this going to cause me to sin? Is this going to cause me to be tempted to sin? Will this allow me to use the gifts that God has given me? Will this bring me closer to God or further away from God? Right? These, that's not the whole list, but you can see how we can begin to, to use what God has already given us to filter through these decisions. And sometimes we get to the end of that process and there's no clear winner. Why, you, but you know why we, we have a problem with that? Because we often see those kind of situations as pass-fail. It's like, well, if you choose this one, you pass. If you choose this one, you fail. You don't know it yet. You're not going to find out for 10 years, but you're going to find out that you failed badly. And we're afraid of that, right? Like, well, well I don't want to do that. But this isn't what we see in God's Word. This isn't how He unfolds stuff. There, there are often times where there are two good choices that could be both within the will of God for us. There's no outright sin. It's not lacking wisdom in any way that we can discern. And God's like, yeah, w- which one do you want to do? It's okay. It's not pass-fail. We need wisdom. And the good news is that God tells us that if we are His, we belong to Him, if we ask Him for wisdom, He promises us that He will give us wisdom. It might not be instantaneous microwave ramen noodle wisdom like we often want. A lot of times it's slow and it takes time and prayer and, and conversations, and we labor, and we pray, and we labor, and we say, I don't know, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? Is this smart? Is this, right? And God's working His wisdom in and through, He's marinating His wisdom in and through our community as a people, as His people, who have His Spirit, and have His Word. And some of us have more wisdom than others, and we can share that wisdom with others. This is the beauty of God's family at work, and how we come to these decisions about what is God's will for me. Get around His people. Get in His Word. Get around the people who share the same Spirit as you. And when we do this, this helps us to do verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Christ, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
This sets us up to be able to do that, which is what if we are his and he's changed our heart and our mind, this is what we really want, right? We want to be pleasing to Christ if we are his. But we can only live lives like this when we are in Christ. It's not possible apart from him. You can't you can't have verse 10 by itself. You can't just say, well, I would like to, in my own strength and power, I would like to live a life that is fully pleasing to Christ. That's not going to happen. I want to walk in a, a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Well, guess who you got to have in order to do that? you got to have the Lord. This is what we've seen in all the book of Romans. That very topic. The life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Christ and bearing fruit is the life that is united to Christ and filled with His Spirit. And I would argue, meaningfully connected to the people of God. Meaningfully connected. Not adjacent. You can catch some scraps sometimes. But being meaningfully connected to the people of God. In Romans 12, we'll close with this. Verses 1 through 3, Paul makes another appeal. This time to the Romans. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And remember, he's saying this is, in view of the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, here's, here's where we get to, by testing, you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In order for us to discern the will of God, we have to, one, be in view of God's mercies. We have to understand how we got to be where we are and who got us there. It's the mercy of God that brought us in. And now we offer ourselves back to Him as living sacrifices. And we say, God, all that I have, all that I am is Yours. I'm giving myself back to You as a, as a living and breathing sacrifice to You. That You have made holy and acceptable by Christ. This is, my, this is how I worship you, God. Keep me from being conformed to the world, not to, not to try to just adopt all the world's strategies, but to adopt your strategies in and through which you transform the way that I, literally the way that I think, the transformation of our minds to think differently than we used to think. Because sometimes the things of God don't make sense to the things of the flesh. The things the, the flesh would look at it and go, that doesn't make any sense. You should not do that. But the, but the Spirit is saying, this does make sense. You should do that. The flesh would say, you shouldn't move across the world to be a missionary with little kids. But the Spirit might be saying, no, no, you definitely should do that. And it's really good. And the world goes, what? And like, the Spirit said it. So we do it, right? There's a difference sometimes. This is why we need to have our minds transformed and renewed, made new. 
The life that is changed by the gospel is one that is given back to God as a living sacrifice. And we give our lives back to him, not to gain his mercy, but because his mercy has already been given. And this is the life that is pleasing to Christ. And this is the way for us to discern what the will of God is for us. To have our minds transformed by his grace as we pursue him and as we grow in our knowledge of him. And as the Spirit works in and through us to give us the wisdom that we need. This is where it's at. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you haven't left us alone. That you haven't left us adrift in life. That we have been, as you say, purchased by you. Redeemed by the blood of Christ. And brought in. Brought into a new kingdom. A new family. A new identity. A new position. And you are in the process, God, of giving us new minds. And so, God, we ask that you would continue to do that in and through us as your people. Give us new minds. Help us to think well. Help us to discern what you would have for us to do as your people. Because you tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that you have good works for us to do. You have laid them out for us. That we could walk in them. And so help us to do that, God. Help us to be your people. Help us to rest in the mercies of God and offer ourselves as living sacrifices back to you, having been made holy and acceptable by you, God. And so help us to do it, God. In Jesus' name, amen.